This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. One of the goals of this podcast is to explain the law to lawyers and non-lawyers alike, and to explain not just what the law is, but why it makes sense, why it's, it is the way it is. In a democracy, it's particularly important that, that the public generally have some sense of the law and some understanding of the law. Today on Law Review, we have two authors who have written wonderful books that have the same purpose, to understand the law and why the law makes sense. We welcome our authors. Daniel Park is the Chief Campus Counsel of UC San Diego, as well as an adjunct professor, and Glenn Smith is a law professor at California Western. Thank you both for joining us uh, on Law Review. Dan, you've just published a, a book, The Legal Mind, Colon, there always has to be a colon, uh, How the Law Thinks. This seems like a strange title. How, how the Law Thinks? What does that mean? The law solves problems. That's the law's purpose. And it doesn't solve problems in the same way that ordinary people do. It has its own approach. Oliver Wendell Holmes, 120 years ago, wrote, the, law, the life of the law is not logic, it's experience. And that approach is a powerful way of resolving disputes but it's not the way that most people approach disputes. For most people, most of the time, facts don't matter very much. What matters are their opinions about the facts, what they believe and what they think is true. And if other people disagree with them, then they can agree to disagree and go their separate ways. But when you enter into a legal dispute, that's no longer the case. The facts matter very, very much. And not only what is really true, but how are you going to convince a third party who has no reason to believe your version of events over that of your adversaries? And that's how the law thinks about a problem. It thinks about a problem by considering both sides as potentially equally true and having to resolve both questions about that. And so the law does think about problems, and that's the question that... Uh, my book sets out to, to, to answer. And when you say the law, you mean the legal system and the participant, lawyers, judges, and the like. Well, yes, right. The entire legal system. Lawyers, judges, also people like jurors, also lawmakers, also uh, the citizens who come before the courts, the litigants. So all participants. And not only people who are in court, but people who are influenced by the law. Because most of us don't actually go to court. But nevertheless, the law's pull governs our conduct. And that law is influencing how we behave. And understanding how the law affects us is like understanding how gravity affects the objects around us. It explains why the world is the way it is, at least in some respects. So the, 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 the book, The Legal Mind, How the Law Thinks, uh, is, would you say you've just described the theme of the book? I would say the theme of the book is that there are two great problems that the law is trying to solve that are not necessarily obvious. The first is, how do you figure out what happened in the past? And most of the time we walk around thinking we have a very firm grasp of the past, or what happened is a fixed set of things, and you can look it up in a book, or you can just ask a person, and you will get your, your answer in the past. But that's not always the case. And the example I like to give is, if you've ever been to a baseball game, and you watched uh, a close play at, 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 at first base, uh, half the crowd will cheer the umpire's call, and the other half will boo and hiss. And so you have 50,000 eyewitnesses to the same event, and yet they have dramatically different interpretations of what happened. And they were all watching, and they were all there, and it only happened moments before. And without instant replay, you might never know the answer of what really happened. 
And many questions about the past are just like that. They're fraught with uncertainty. The other major question that the law struggles with is, what are the right rules? So we might even know what happened, but what are the right rules to apply? And it turns out that as we think about different conduct, our sense of what is just and what is right and what is wrong is very nuanced. Small details can change uh, one conduct which you think is, well, that's clearly wrong, to wait, no, that's clearly right. So, for example, you might say, well, you can't exceed the speed limit. That's wrong. That puts people in danger. However, if you have a bleeding child in the back seat and you're rushing them to the hospital, you might say that's clearly right. It is clearly right because you might be morally compelled to save that child's life and rush them to the hospital. And so the law is always struggling with those kinds of questions. Great. Glenn Smith, your book is Constitutional Law for Dummies. That's also a strange name. How can such a complicated subject as constitutional law be for, for dummies? Well, I think uh, when I took this on, by the way, with my co-author, Patricia Fusco, who's a well-known uh, state attorney here in California, uh, we, I, I think I was initially skeptical as a professor. You know, I've devoted my entire life to dealing with the complications of this. And so when uh, we were the, the dummies, the line of dummies books said they wanted to start a new undergraduate oriented and intelligent layperson oriented version, uh, I was a little bit skeptical. But, um, you know, when you think about it, the things that students at all levels, lawyers, law students, undergraduates, intelligent generalists and all that are interested in are the overall um, ordering principles that make the complexities make sense. I mean, Dan just mentioned two themes. There's similar, uh, there's a similar finite set of themes that constitutional law deals with. And uh, so we were able to organize it around that, those as well as some of the subjective areas. So um, w who was your audience? Well, it was both, uh, primarily it was undergraduates um, who were taking law-related courses. But we quickly found that we could say a lot that would be of use to law students. Um, I've been told that this is a great outline that can be used in law classes. And also that, that generalists, I teach... Uh, uh, some courses locally for senior citizens who are just taking courses for the love of, of learning. And I'm finding that they're very able to understand the concepts as well. So I'll have to say I have used it a couple of times, and it is a great book for the lay public. And I, I say what the, the, the subject is. You know I do a little article for doctors and psychologists each year, and I end up repeatedly having to try to explain uh, implicit, implied preemption. Uh, which is uh, difficult, and I, I've struggled with it. But when I looked at your your book, on there are a couple pages that mention it a couple places. It was really, it, was, it really was a, a nice, concise way of uh, of explaining it. And when when Lyra, when my wife asked me about uh, something now that I either don't remember or um, am not going to get said very efficiently. I simply give her your book to oh, the, well, the appropriate page. It's it's really, it is terrific for non-lawyers. Well, I think that these kinds of books are useful for people who are lawyers and also law students because one thing that law school does is it often focuses on the case method and it reads case after case after case. And this was a way of teaching law that was developed 100 years ago and hasn't really evolved all that much. But one thing that sometimes is missing is a sense of... Uh, what are the ideas? What are the, what, are the, what are the principles? What are the general rules that are applying in a particular situation? 
And, and books like Glenn's book, which gives you the themes and explains the concepts and things like my book, was trying to explain uh, the cost, co- concept of how the system works as opposed to specific rules, gives people a framework for understanding all the other individual pieces. And sometimes that's missing. I, I, I really do uh, agree. And, and it, what, lawyers are supposed to be teachers. And seeing how someone else has been able to explain it, it, uh, a, a complex topic it helps, I think, always helps us to think through teaching. Well, and we have a we have a colleague here, Steve, who um, has a phrase. I heard it years ago, and I always think about it. Uh, she says, "It's I'm not interested in the simplicity on that side of complexity. I'm interested in the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Meaning, as you learn all the complications, it's then useful to take it to the level where you can see the." see its simple elegance. And I mean, that's as you say, that's what lawyers do when they're arguing to a judge. The, you have to give people a concept and a framework and all that. So I, I think that it sounds like Dan has discovered what, what I and my co-author have discovered as well, which is, is um, the best teaching can both be sophisticated and yeah. can also, though, really deliver the clarity that all students and all you know humans yeah, are looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do agree with I do agree with that. Well, let's talk about a couple of the the areas that you discussion discuss in your book. Um, I was really taken, Dan, in, in your the, the amount of social science data that you uh, rely on, cognitive psychology and economics and so on. And included uh, a, a section on eyewitness reliability, which is hugely important in the law because so many criminal trials, as well as well civil uh, disputes, depend on eyewitness. And uh, the law has given a lot of credibility to eyewitnesses, but you suggest maybe too much credibility. Well, it's not just the law. I think that this is uh, a very common perception among people because this is how we perceive the world. I saw something, therefore I know it. I know it because I saw it. And so the association between seeing and knowing is so intuitive, it's almost reflexive in people. And so when other people say they saw something, we attribute it the same sense of certainty. They say they saw it, so it must be what they saw. But seeing is actually much more complex than it seems. And uh, and this comes up all the time in eyewitness testimony. And the reason that I rely a lot on social science is that many researchers recently have demonstrated, uh, in, in both in uh, psychological experiments in the laboratory, but also through uh, real-world exonerations in, uh, of criminal defendants who were wrongfully convicted, that eyewitness testimony is much less reliable than we generally believe. And there is numerous failings that can occur in eyewitness testimony. So to actually uh, identify something with your eyes, you have to have seen it, so that's clear. You have to have understood what you've seen. And then you have to be able to recall what you have seen and do all of those accurately. And it seems like anybody can do that instantaneously, but our perceptions are much more limited than we believe. Often we see what we want to see, Uh, We remember what we want to remember, and uh, we can't tell if our memories are accurate or inaccurate. So there was a a famous prank that was done uh, by a a British TV show where they invited some uh, girls to come in and uh, test out some lip balm to find out which was the most kissable lip balm. 
And so they had these very handsome models, and the girls were asked, would they be willing to kiss the two models with their brand and the competitor's brand to decide which was most kissable? And the girls were giddy. They were like, okay. Uh, seeing these handsome men that they were going to get to kiss, they were, they, they were thrilled to volunteer for the experiment. So they were blindfolded to make the test fair. And unbeknownst to them, here's the prank, the models were led off stage and were replaced by chimpanzees. And so the girls were led up to the chimpanzees, and they started kissing the chimpanzees. And not just little pecks on the cheek. These were full-on lip-smacking kisses. And only when the blindfold was taken off did they realize that they were kissing chimps and not models. And what does this tell you? It tells you that people's perceptions are so influenced by what they expect to see sometimes they only see what they expect to see. They only feel what they expect to feel, and they don't actually perceive what's really going on. And that can lead to some very serious errors when that testimony is introduced in court. Well, and, and I, I did find that among the more fascinating parts of the book because of the, the centrality of eyewitnesses to, to the law. Uh, Glenn, let me ask you a, a question. That it's, it's easy to be cynical about the Supreme Court and therefore about constitutional law. That is just another, uh, well, it is another branch of government. It's just another branch of politics. Right. That the justices of the Supreme Court are just politicians that wear black robes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Is that true? Uh, I don't think it's true. I, you know, as I, I think either the it's all politics explanation or the it's all law explanation is, uh, either one of those is incomplete. In fact, I... Patricia and I spend um, a, a whole chapter in this book trying to break that down and saying, yes, constitutional law, there's significant law there. So the cynics that say Justice Scalia or Justice Breyer just decide how they feel about a particular issue and they, they write the opinion, it's are being oversimplistic. Judges operate in a legal milieu where there are certain assumptions about precedents have to be followed and there are certain kinds of arguments that are legitimate and not legitimate and certain kinds of deference that judges should pay to elected officials. And those do matter. There's some celebrated examples where justices have very much say, politically, I hate this result, but this is the result I have to go for because, you know, that's what the law requires. So there, so I, I, I think the cynics are oversimplistic, but so is this view that, or, you know, that someone should be shocked when there's politics or ideology involved in this. After all these issues, you know, how much, what's the right balance between security and freedom of speech? Um, what is affirmative action constitution? Those are those are issues that not only are legally controversial but politically and socially controversial. And so it should be no surprise that uh, ideology matters, and we do see alignments of conservatives and liberals on the court. I, I think I find myself more these days trying to go against the tide of cynicism, where you know in the media, even reputable reporters in the media refer to conservative justice so and so or liberal justice so and so as though they always vote that way. They're always consistent, and they're kind of that's their they wear this label on the bench. But um, but but it's it's a balance. It's like you know much of the theme of this book is you got you, you can't be categorical or absolutist about constitutional law, or you miss the nuance. And and the other thing I suppose is worth mentioning is an awful lot of cases are unanimous or nearly unanimous. Right, right. Um, and, and the other side of that coin is um, that even the justices that always vote together and are thought to be fellow travelers, uh, I think the you know in one recent term the greatest degree of alignment was about sixty five percent, and the, so the you know. 
two justices that voted most together voted 65% of the time. So that means they disagreed 35% of the time. And then even the ones that were most diametrically opposed agreed about 35% of the time. So we're talking about variations between the, the limits and the parameters. And I think that's an important thing for the public and lawyers and law students to keep in mind. One, Glenn, one, thing, one observation I have about the Supreme Court is that a lot of people get their constitutional law from following the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court uh, takes a very small number of cases, and the cases that they pick tend to be the toughest cases. Right. The cases yeah. that have divided the lower courts. Other courts, yeah. Exactly. And so uh, people's perception of constitutional law is that it's very contentious and controversial all across the board, and they miss the large swaths of it that are settled and everyone accepts, right. because those aren't the cases that the Supreme Court needs to intervene on. They're being handled routinely. Or if they courts. intervene, they don't get any kind of coverage. I mean, there's not going to get front page news that today the Supreme Court interpreted Section 3 of the tax code this way. It's like <laughs> unanimously. It's like, okay, right. except right. maybe the Wall Street Journal would cover that. But. <laughs> the other thing about the Constitution that, that, that I touch on in my book, and, and, and you know, Glenn really deals with in his, but is that uh, the words of the Constitution themselves are not so specific that they dictate an obvious outcome in every case. And that's, uh, that that's, comes from two parts. One is that when you're writing a constitution, you don't want to be so specific and tie people's hands because this is a document meant to endure for a very long period of time. But also it comes from the inherent ambiguity of language. Words that, that may mean something to you may not mean the same thing to other people. And so the hallowed phrases of our Constitution are susceptible to multiple interpretations. And it's not just cynical politics. It's people with honest differences about what does liberty mean? What, what is liberty? What is your liberty to one person is, is, is too far for another? Or what is freedom of speech? Or what is due process? What process is due? Different people can disagree. And, of course, part of this gets at another big theme that we, we touch on, uh, which is that you have to have an interpretive theory. You have to ask yourself, are you trying to figure out what those words, as you said, the general ambiguous words meant at the time, and your, and your purpose is to figure out the intent of the people back then, or did the framers back then intend the Constitution to, to be a living document, an evolving document? So not only do we have the ambiguity of words, but we have changes in American society and the economy and the family and all that and disagreements about how much those should be reflected in, in interpreting the words. Right. Absolutely. And one of the things that you know, I try and touch on, because I think this is not well understood, is people are always, at least for me, always worried about why are lawyers always arguing? And it's because the words themselves don't necessarily answer all the questions. Some words are clear enough. You know, the president is president for four years, and we all agree what a year is. It's 365 days, except in a leap year when it's 366, and that's what it is. But uh, other words, we don't all agree what they mean. And, and as Glenn says, then the question is, well, how are you going to figure out what it means? And different people have different processes for coming to a conclusion about what a word means. So there is ambiguity upon ambiguity, and, and, and that is at the root of, uh, of one of the difficulties of the legal system that I think that uh, people don't always appreciate. Well, and, and both of you deal with, with something that's in some ways a paradox, because one of the purposes of the law is to try to provide certainty and, and knowing what's going on. Right. Uh, Glenn, you've been talking about the uncertainty of constitutional interpretation, 
And uh, Dan, in, at the, uh, near the end of your book, you really emphasize the problem of risk uh, and, and the risky nature of the legal system. Well, absolutely. The law is risky in a number of respects. Uh, first, it's not clear that you're always going to be able to establish what happened in the past. And if you have a dispute and it matters what happens, you have to be able to prove it. And, not, and, it, and you may not be able to do that. Even if you do have proof, you may not be believed. People may disbelieve you for no good reason or for reasons that you feel are not sufficient. And even if you have that established, then the question then becomes, will the right rules be applied in the right situation? And so uncertainty builds upon uncertainty, which builds upon uncertainty. One of the examples I give in my book is that uh, you know, I talk about the lawyer, a lawyer telling a client, you have, you, know, you have an 85% chance of winning your case. And that feels pretty good, 85%. Uh, most people feel that's a pretty good bet. But then you start thinking, well, that means I have a 15% chance of losing. And, well, how, how likely is that? And if you think that a 15% chance is the same chance as rolling a seven with two dice, that's, that happens pretty likely. And then, I, so I compare this to the game of Russian roulette, where you also have a one in six chance of losing mm-hmm. and a five in six chance of winning. And even though the odds are heavily in your favor of winning, most people won't play that game. In fact, most people would pay a lot of money not to play the game. And then the question that I ask as a thought experiment is how many chambers does the pistol have to have before you're comfortable playing Russian roulette? Is it, you know, is it six? Is it 10? Is it 36? Is it 100? And that's the kind of question that litigants in the court have to ask themselves. What kind of odds are they willing to accept to run the risk of having their dispute decided by a system whose outcomes can't be known with certainty in advance? And of course, uh, Litigants before the Supreme Court or people who are trying to decide whether to take a case to the Supreme Court and what to argue and all that have all those kinds of risks they, they have to balance as well. Today on Law Review, we're talking with two great authors, Dan Park, the author of The Legal Mind, How the Law Thinks, and Professor Glenn Smith, Constitutional Law for Dummies. Uh, both of you have published these in somewhat unusual ways. So I wanted to... Uh, to take a minute and, and talk about the, the way you publish this, Dan, let's start with uh, with your your publication is through Amazon, which I was unfamiliar with until you told me yes, about so it. So my book is, is self-published, and I wanted to avoid traditional publishers for a couple of reasons. One, uh, traditional publishers uh, take a long time to get a book out. And this was an idea that I thought that people should have in their hands. The law should be accessible and understandable to people, and it shouldn't take two years of publications to get the book out, for, to get that out to people. Uh, the other thing was that, you know, my book doesn't have uh, the same obvious market that a lot of law books. It's not meant for practitioners necessarily, which will tell you how, uh, uh, in detail, how a specific area of law works. And it's not, meant, it's not a how-to for lay people about how to write a will or incorporate a corporation. It's really for somebody who wants to understand the legal system itself, its logic, its, 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 its inner workings. And, 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 and these are concepts that can be applied to any legal problem. And in fact, they can be applied to any problem because legal thinking is just thinking. It's just an approach for resolving disputes and conflicts and questions that we have all the time, all the time, if, whether you're asking for a raise or you're going in for a mortgage or you're trying to pitch uh, a business idea, people are going to demand uh, proof 
They're going to uh, approach the problem skeptically, and understanding the nature of their skepticism and how to approach it and overcome it is something that the legal system uh, has been working on for centuries and is very helpful to people. And so I wanted to have, uh, I wanted to get a book out that that could answer that question. And it's and it's available in two formats. Yes, so it is available in print. Uh, so just like uh, it, I mean, it's a book, and it's I'm available electronically. It in my very hand. It yes. is real paper, a- and it's also available electronically uh, as a Kindle version. And uh, I went with Amazon uh, mostly because Amazon dominates the uh, electronic book market. Uh, I've read that ninety percent of all electronic books sold in America are sold through Amazon. In fact, one out of four print books sold in America are sold by Amazon. Wow. So Amazon yeah. controls and dominates the, the book sale market today. And um, so if someone were interested in finding the legal mind, how the, the law thinks, they would go to Amazon and just put your name or the, uh, the book's title in, and it pops up as one of two options. That's right. If you go to Amazon, type in the legal mind, uh, it will pop up and you can get it either as an ebook or as a paper book. Uh, it's available in some other venues, but really Amazon is the is is by far the most prominent, most important, uh, and uh, you know it's 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 a great source. There's a place where they have reader reviews, so Amazon is a really very uh, user friendly so place for finding books. Although I also think that uh, you know support your local bookstores and uh, you know independent bookstores are important, but. You know, just the, the reality of publishing these days is Amazon is, is the dominant And player. you went through your own editorial pro- editing process. I mean, well, yeah, you can't write a book without an editor. That's, uh, for those people write, thinking about writing books, don't try it. Don't do this alone. Uh, so, yes. And so, uh, but in, in, this, in this do-it-yourself age, um, there are freelance editors. And, um, you know, I contacted a, a person who used to work at one of the big publishing houses uh, and left as those big publishing houses are struggling more financially. And uh, so she's running her own editing business and collecting uh, you know, her fees directly from, uh, from uh, authors. And uh, so the book was professionally edited. Uh, we have the, the cover was designed. It's, it's just a, it's, it's, it's every, all the pieces can be put together by, by a person nowadays. It's, it's, it's quite fascinating. And Glenn, uh, yours is part of the Dummies series, right? Uh, so the, in that sense, it's a standard uh, publishing. But it's right. uh, constitutional law for dummies seems uh, atypical for law professors. That's right. The standard joke whenever people hear about the title initially is they think it's the the book always relied on by their least favorite Supreme Court justice. <laughs> uh, but but it, you know, no, it's true. It's the dummies. It's in the series. It's got the yellow uh, book, uh, very identifiable. And that, frankly, was one of the appeals to us is uh, the whole principle behind the dummies series is that you can take complicated ideas and make them accessible, and they have certain standard format features, you know, uh, particular icons and sidebars, and, and really that, that pull for understandability and organization. And so uh, it was attractive to do that. They also have really great editors, uh, and uh, I must say one of the nice things for me is they put a very rigorous time schedule on it. Each chapter had to be in a certain amount of time, and so it became not this nice idea I would get to, quote, when I had time, but I, I made time for it. So it, it was a really good experience. Um, the, as I said, the two, two or three of the editors were very 
smart, but because none of them were lawyers, they would ask the questions that typical non-lawyer readers would ask, saying, this isn't clear, or why do you say this, or can you say this a different way? And so I learned a lot, uh, and, and Patricia learned a lot in the editing process. We edited each other's things, too, of course. Well, to both of you, congratulations. They, they are wonderful books. I think they make a real contribution, and uh, it's great to start a new year with having these available for, uh, for the long winter nights. So our guests yes. on Law Review today have been Dan Park, the Chief Campus Counsel of UC San Diego, and Glenn Smith, a law professor at California Western School of Law. Thank you for being with us on Law Review. You are both speaking as individuals and not representing your institutions. Right, or my publisher. Yeah, right. What would would this be without uh, a disclaimer? (laughs) Uh, So we also want to thank our producers, uh, Jinhee Park, Katrina Julian, Megan Wright, and Sarah Kagey. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, so feel free to leave us a message on the website, lawreview.podbean.com. Until next time, this is Steve Smith, and the Law Review stands adjourned.